Well, it's good to be back with you again for this, the third and final in the uh, series on Abraham. Maybe for you it's the first time uh, you've been here, but uh, hopefully you'll be able to pick it up as we go through. I'm just wondering, is there anyone here from Grafton? Any Graftonites in the room? No one from Gra- anyone from near Grafton? Does anyone know where Grafton is? Thank you. Good. Okay. Last October, I um, was asked <laughs> for about, I think, the tenth time uh, to go and speak at the uh, Grafton, it's Grafton's famous festival. And seems you don't come from Grafton, I'll just tell you what it is. It's the Jacaranda Festival. I've said no nine times, but when someone asks ten times, you've got to say yes eventually. It's an amazing sort of event. Um, they, Grafton is famous for jacaranda trees, as you're probably aware and they have a jacaranda queen they crown and a jacaranda runner-up and they do all these amazing things through the week. Uh, but the reason I went up there is because in one of the churches in Grafton, they actually run a jacaranda service and they actually have a jacaranda Bible teaching. And uh, the jacaranda service, the members of parliament come and all the dignitaries from the town, the jacaranda queen, and hundreds of people come. And because it's a jacaranda service, they all wear purple. I don't know if you've ever stood up and spoken to 500 people who are all dressed in purple, but it really is a sight to be seen. My only problem is this. I don't like jacarandas. And the reason that I don't like jacarandas is because I'm a graduate of the University of Sydney. Now, some of you may work out why that is already. If you can't, this is what I suggest you do this afternoon. Head over to the main quad and try and count the number of trees in the main quad. Won't take you long. There are, is, one. Okay, and what is it? A jacaranda. And when the jacaranda comes into flower, what do you know is coming soon? Exams. And we all love those, don't we? Okay, so ever since then, actually where I teach at the moment, if you ever come and visit us, when you walk in the front gate, the very first tree that you see is a jacaranda, because every tertiary institution should have one. We come this afternoon to look at a test that makes your exams fade into absolute insignificance. It is an amazing test. It's depicted for us in stories. Those of you who do fine arts may know of Rembrandt's very famous picture that depicts this scene. It's a story that is haunting, that is infuriating, that is riveting, that is shocking, but most of all, the issue with this story is that it just doesn't make sense. Let's have a look at verse 2. God says this to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now hopefully when Jeremy read that story for us, you were actually thinking that we were actually here skirting on the very edge of morality. What is this that God requires the sacrifice of Isaac? We know that the Canaanites who lived in the land before Abraham, we know that they practiced infanticide, the sacrifice of children, but the people of Israel have never done it. And let's be quite honest, it's absolutely offensive. 
and it skirts on the very edges of morality. So I want to ask three questions of this passage as we look at it this afternoon. Firstly, as you can see on the screen, the first thing I want to ask is what is the nature of the test that is made of Abraham? Secondly, I want to ask what's the meaning of the test? What's it mean in its original context? And in particular, we're going to look at the whole issue of the firstborn in the understanding of Abraham. And thirdly, the thing that you all want to know when you go into an exam, the third thing is what is the answer to the test? What's the solution to the test? And that's going to be that the Lord provides. So let's look through those three points uh, now. The first thing is what is the nature of the test? We start in 22.1 with those haunting words, after these things. Now, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, let me recap, or if you have been here, let me recap. After what things? Well, if you remember, God has said to Abram, who lives in southern Iraq, in Ur of the Chaldees, leave your home, leave your family, leave your culture, and come to a new land which you will claim. And so with his wife Sarai, he sets out and he goes to the land and he claims that land for the Lord all the way to the Negev. And then we see that God makes a covenant with him. And he says, Abram, I am going to make of you a great nation. By Sarah, I am going to give you a son. And this son will be the beginning of a great number of people that you cannot number, even try up in the sky, number the stars, that's how big the nation is going to be. We know that Abram is 10 years older than his wife. He turns 80, she turns 70, no kids. He turns 90, she turns 80, no kids. And then in Genesis 17... God comes, and we didn't look at this passage, but God comes and restates the promise again to Abram. And he actually changes his name. If you don't know this, you probably don't, that Abram actually means father. And God changes Abram's name to father of many. That's what Abraham means. If you like, he changes his name from daddy to big daddy. And Sarai, her name means princess. Are any Sarahs in the room? Do you know what Sarah means? Sarah also means princess. And if you know the story from elsewhere, you'll know that at one point messengers come from God and they remind uh, Abraham that he's going to have a child and his princess Sarah is inside the tent and she hears what's happening on the outside of the tent. And do you remember what she did? She laughed. As if I'm going to have a child. Look at me. I'm a geriatric. And so, do you know, when the child is born, do you know what they name the child? You might say they name him Isaac. That's right, that's Hebrew. But I'll tell you what it means. Isaac means he laughs. And so we get to the end of Genesis 21. Sarah's fallen pregnant. She's had a baby. And here we have Big Daddy and his princess and their laughing bundle of joy and it seems like we've got to the end of the story and that's where we should end it and everybody lived happily ever after. It's time for the movie to end and for us to go home. We've had a lovely resolution at the end of Genesis 21 and then we read, after these things, 
God tested Abraham. Now you know the importance of tests. You don't like them. No one likes them. But next time that you get sick and you have to go and see the doctor, I'm sure you're going to be grateful about the fact that the doctor had to pass a few exams. On Saturday, I'm, flying, uh, I'm going to be flying up the north coast and as I'm running down the runway at Sydney Airport, I'm going to be very grateful that in the Boeing factory in Seattle or wherever it is, they tested for metal fatigue and all the sort of tests that they've done on the plane, never alone the tests for the pilots and everybody else. We understand the importance of testing. James chapter 1 tells us that testing is there for our growth in maturity. But offer Isaac as a burnt offering Isaac as a burnt offering it just doesn't make sense i mean you might say hasn't abraham been tested enough i mean he's left his family he's left his culture he's left everything his land that is dear to him and now he's being tested at every level of his being again hasn't he been tested enough think about this test It would have tested him intellectually. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. He's waited for decades for this son through whom the promise will be fulfilled and now he's told to give the son up. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's going to test him emotionally. This is his son that we're talking about. It's going to test him in terms of his actions, his morality. Are we able to actually take innocent life? Is this moral to actually do this? At every level of his being, at his head, at his heart, and at his hands, at his cognition, at his emotions, and at his volition, Abraham is tested. And it's not just Abraham is tested. Have a look at chapter 23, verse 1. You'll see in the first verse of chapter 23 that Sarah dies and she's she's 127 years of age when she dies. Now we know that Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. So that's pretty simple maths, even you can do that. We know that uh, Sarah dies when Isaac is 37 years of age. Most Jewish tradition puts this episode happening in Isaac's 30s. Sometimes other things in the passage make me question that a bit, but if you listen carefully when the passage was read, Isaac carries wood. Isaac has a conversation with his dad. In fact, it's the only recorded conversation that we have between Abraham and Isaac. So he's at least old enough to be, he's at least eight, he's at least nine, he could be 15, there's quite a good possibility he's about your age, he might be about 20 He could even be as old as 35, but however old he was, I want to say to you that he's old enough to run away, and he doesn't. It's not just Abraham who is tested. And so we see that they set out, and they set out from the land of Bathsheba, and they go the three-day trip that goes to Moriah. Now here's a really important verse for you. It's up there on the screen, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. We see later on, you know, nearly a thousand years later, heaps of years later, there's a man called Solomon. 
He's the son of David. Do you know what Solomon's famous for? He's famous for building the temple. Have a look at that verse. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, that's the temple, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. It becomes really important for how this story plays out. The place where Abraham goes with his son Isaac to make a sacrifice is going to later on become the place where the people of Israel make sacrifice in the temple, which is going to be exactly the same place where the Lamb of God, whose name is Jesus, is actually going to stand trial before Pilate and before Herod. It's a really significant place. But as they're going there, we see the words that come from Isaac. He says, look, Dad, verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt sacrifice? Abraham doesn't know how this test is going to work out. Like any test, going into the test, he didn't know what the answer to the test was going to be. But Abraham had lived a life that had walked by faith and he had seen again and again and again in his life the Lord's provision. So he simply says these words, God will provide. And so they climb the mountain. Silent, no conversation. Isaac is carrying the wood. Abraham takes his son. He builds an altar. He binds his son upon that altar. He raises his knife to slay his son. And you might say, look, I'm not a Christian. I've just come along here today because I'm a little bit interested in Christianity. But this is the reason I can't cope with Christianity. It's so bloodthirsty. That's just primitive. I can't cope with that. It is immoral for what is happening here. Maybe you are a Christian and you say, look, you know, I can cope with the New Testament a little bit, but I just can't cope with the Old Testament. All this blood sacrifice. I mean, what does it all mean? It's just so primitive. No, I'm not going to have anything to do with Christianity. I refuse to go there. Well, if that's what you're saying at this point of the story, there's three things I want to point out to you. Firstly, if you say that this is immoral, then beware where you run to because I hope you're going to run to somewhere that is more moral. And where are you going to run to? Now, I'm going to talk about an issue that's probably confronting, but I think it needs to be said. I'm going to talk about the issue of abortion. And if you're someone who has had an abortion, I want to say that there is mercy, there is forgiveness, and you should talk to someone afterwards about it. But I want to say this. I looked at the stats for abortion in preparing this talk. The most recent stats that I could find on the internet were the Medicare stats for 2005. In 2005, Medicare funded 75,000 abortions in Australia. And we all know how the stats work. We all know that probably the majority of women who have abortions do not do it through Medicare because they don't want the whole issue to be, to be traced. They normally do it through private funding of some form. How many are there? at least 75,000 slaying of innocent life in Australia every year. And you think you're going to run to secular Australia and it's going to be more moral than this? You're kidding. The second thing, though, that we need to actually realise is you've got to read the whole story. 
he actually doesn't require infanticide. God never requires that in this way of Abraham. If you've got an ESV there, as I've got here, look at the heading. It is appalling. The text is inspired, but the headings aren't inspired. The NIV wins all the time here. In the ESV, it says the sacrifice of Isaac. Can you see it there? But you know what? He's not sacrificed, if you read, heard the end of the story. The NIV gets it right. What does the NIV say? The testing of Abraham or something? Abraham is tested? Yeah, that's much better. Here's the, if you've got a problem with Isaac being sacrificed, well, good on you. So is God. And he doesn't require it. It's not what the Jews call it. The Jews don't call it the sacrifice of Isaac. They call it the Akidah. It's up on the board. And the word Akidah means binding. It's the binding of Isaac that happens here. So that's the second thing if you've got a moral problem. But the third thing, if you've got a moral problem with this, is that we need to actually beware of presentism. And those of you studying history will know what presentism is. Presentism is applying the ethics of today when we study a culture of the past, because it doesn't work. The classic example is you might want to look at, say, 2nd century BC uh, Greece, and you actually look at it as a country that is not gender neutral. It's ridiculous. You're actually looking at an issue of today and applying it to a different society. It doesn't work. It's called presentism, and it actually distorts history. And we need to be aware of presentism in this, and so we need to ask, what does it mean in its original context? And that then brings us to our second point. What does this mean in its original context? And in particular, how do we understand the whole scenario of the firstborn? You see, sometimes we think that Abraham passed the test because he did what God told him to do. And if God tells you to do something that's immoral, then you should do it. What does that say about your God? If your God tells you to go around killing infants, what does that say about your God? It says something. Surely it says something about the morality of God. Now, it's not what's happening here. If that's what you think, then Abraham failed the test. Let's understand the context. The context here works in an understanding of the firstborn, or the big word for that is primogenitor. How do we understand the firstborn? Well, let me illustrate by today. For those of you who come from uh, rural New South Wales and you've come down to the city, you'll know this better than people from the city. If you live in an agrarian society and Dad's going to make his will, and it's a patriarchal society, things go down through the line of the son, let's not be uh, guilty of presentism again, that's how it happened in the time of Abraham. And Dad's got four sons. So when Dad dies, we think it's fair to actually give a quarter of the farm to each son. And then each of those sons have four sons each. And when they die, they give a quarter of the farm to each of their sons. And within only two generations, each family is trying to farm a farm that is 16th the size of the original farm. And it won't take very long and the family will die out and it's unsustainable. You cannot do that in an agrarian society. So what used to happen in feudal England is this. And we still see it in the British aristocracy. The oldest son, the firstborn, inherits not only the title, the earl, the duke, whatever he happens to be, but he also inherits the whole estate. The secondborn son often goes into the armed forces. The thirdborn son might go into the church, will look after the other sons some other ways. But the firstborn inherits the lot. 
But, and here's the important but, the firstborn then has responsibility for the whole family. He has responsibility for his brothers, for his sisters, for his brother's wives, for his nieces, for his nephews, for his daughters, for his sons. All the hopes of the family are caught up in the firstborn. Now remember, before the Industrial Revolution, which is only a couple of hundred years ago, 90-something percent of the world lived in agrarian societies. And that's the way they function. They can't function any other way. And so we see that in this society, instead of how you think, where your hopes and aspirations are very individual, you're at university because you're training to do something that you want to do because you have individual hopes and aspirations. But in an agrarian society, the hopes and aspirations are for the family. And it's for the moral responsibility of the family, the advancement of the family. And it's all tied up in the firstborn. It comes all the way through the Old Testament. I don't know if you've noticed, but God says the firstborn of the cattle are mine. Why does God require the firstborn of the cattle? God says in the Old Testament the first 10%, not any 10%, but the first 10% belongs to me. The first fruits of the harvest belong to me. He's saying that in that I require the firstborn, I require the lot. The firstborn is forfeit because the lot belongs to me. And so when we come to the time of Moses, who's writing this book of Genesis, we see that there are ten plagues in Egypt, if you remember the story. And the tenth of those plagues is when the angel of death passes through Egypt, and what does the angel require? The firstborn. And so the children of Israel are told, if you sacrifice a lamb, and if you get the blood of the lamb, and you put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts or on the lintel, then the angel of death will pass over that home, and the firstborn will be saved, and in the saving of the firstborn, so the whole family will be saved. Every year, right until this year, they'll do it again next year, Jews continue to celebrate the Passover. They are celebrating their redemption in the rescuing of the firstborn, in whom all the hopes of the family are secured. And so God says, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. How many nations of the world belong to God? Well, they all are his. He created all of them. And yet there's a firstborn older brother who has responsibility for all of them, in whom the hopes of the world are secured. And that's in Israel, his firstborn son. And eventually in Israel's Messiah, who is going to be Jesus. When Jesus comes, Jesus becomes the one who is the one and only son from the Father, we read in John's Gospel. He is the firstborn of God. And so in him, all the hopes are secured. Abraham needed to show God in the test that even as far as the promise is concerned, it all belongs to God. And he does it in the offering up of the firstborn. That's what it means when Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. You might have had the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door and saying, look, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is born. Jesus is not God. Nonsense. If we understand what the firstborn means, it means in Jesus, all the hopes for the whole family are held 
in terms of him being the firstborn of creation. And so we see what happens. We see at the offering up of Isaac, we see that then a, a ram is provided. The Lord will provide, remember. God will provide. And what does he provide? A ram in the thicket. And then the ram substitutes for the firstborn and takes the penalty of Israel. In the same way as the blood of the lambs had substituted in the Passover later on. In the same way that later on, on Mount Moriah, after Solomon builds the temple, the blood of bulls and goats substitutes for the sin of the people, the firstborn for the many. In the same way that later on, because we know that ultimately the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, God's very firstborn substitutes for the sin of humanity. The Bible calls that substitution, substitutionary atonement. And so we read later on in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises uh, was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. But Abraham didn't know all that in verse 7. He just walked by faith and he said to his son Isaac, God will provide. But that's why he was prepared to offer up the firstborn. And so, thirdly, What's the answer to the test? How does God provide the answer to this test of the problem of, of sin? Well, little did Abraham realise the significance of that ram caught in the thicket as time went on. Look at verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Now, the way you say that in Hebrew, you might sing a song about it in your church. It's called Jehovah Jireh. You might know the song. That's what it means. That comes from this passage. That's what the place is called. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. A ram was provided. That's what was provided. A substitute was provided. A temple was provided within which there could be the sacrifice of animals. The Son of Man was provided. On that mount, it will be provided. But you might still have a problem, and your problem might be this. Why does God require still that sacrifice? Why can't God just turn a blind eye to sin and just say, well, you know, why do we have to do all this sort of the sacrifice of the firstborn on behalf of the many? Well, we're thinking in families, remember. We're not thinking individually. Put up your hand if your family has never sinned. Put up your hand if your family does not have a debt of sin. Well, what's the wages of sin again? Death, that's it. Now, that's, so we're all in the same boat. Note my hand didn't go up as well. We all have a, a debt of sin that we need to pay. And you say, well, why don't we just uh, forget about it? Well, just this last week, I've been watching what's happening in Burma. 
and it just gets me so angry. I've been watching what's happened in China, and although there's enormous, enormous tragedy in China, at least the Chinese officials are mobilised and motivated to do everything they possibly can, and at least the world is responding. But in Burma, the world is responding, but the Burmese will not allow it in. And you've seen what's been happening in the news. And that gets me so angry. Do you get angry by injustice in the world? My mother-in-law was born in Berlin in 1932, a Jew. She later became a Christian, but if you want to have a chat to her, she can tell you of all the people in her family, heaps of them, who were killed by the Nazis. I can think of other things. Where did your family come from? Were your family refugees from injustice? Maybe from Vietnam? Maybe from Pol Pot? Millions of people were killed under Pol Pot. And do you want to follow a God that just says, we'll forget about that, we'll move on. Watch the news tonight. I don't know what's going to be on the news tonight, but it's going to be full of injustice. If that's the sort of God that we have, I don't want to follow him. Justice is important. And so God says, every family has a debt of justice to be paid and I require the firstborn who will pay that debt on behalf of the whole family. But here's the problem, and I hope you can see the problem. That problem contradicts the promise of God. Because if God takes the firstborn, then how is this promise of all the world going to be blessed through the firstborn going to be fulfilled? How does God resolve the tension that's there between the debt and the promise? And he does it by substitution. He does it by the fact that the ram takes the sacrifice for Isaac. He does it by the fact that the sacrifices of the Old Testament take our sacrifices. He does it by the fact that Jesus, ultimately as our older brother, as Hebrews says, takes the debt of the firstborn, that we might have the promise secured. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 4. How can God be both just, uphold justice, and justifier and have grace? And there's only one solution. It's through substitution. And so it's not because Abraham obeyed. The name of that mountain is not on the mountain of the Lord it shall be obeyed. The name of that mountain is on the name of the Lord, it shall be provided. It is because God provided. The dilemma is solved by the ram. It's solved by the blood of the lamb in the Passover. It's solved by the sacrifices of the Old Testament. It's solved on the mountain of the Lord in the most amazing way because you're listening to this. What God did not require of Abraham because God did not require the death of Abraham's son. God gave himself. God allowed his own son, his own firstborn, to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The firstborn of all creation. The one and only son of the Father. He allows for his son to be the firstborn of all creation. Last year I was overseas at a conference of New Testament scholars 
and a very significant New Testament scholar who was there I was speaking to and I'd listened to this talk from this scholar and what they said in their talk is we actually need to move on from this whole idea of substitution and we need to actually move on to talk about representation. Jesus might be our representative but he's not our substitute. I even talked to them after the event but they were unrepentant. Let me tell you, if we do need to move on from substitution, we move on from the gospel. That's what I thought, I didn't say it. If we take away substitution, then we get back to the horrible problem again of how can God be both just and justify? How can God deal with the problem of sin and still keep alive the promise of God? You see, every sort of redeeming love that there is in the world in some way is substitutionary. I don't know if you've thought about this, and I'll challenge you. I've challenged everyone. This, I've probably, I don't know how many people I've spoken to this week, quite a few hundred people at EU, and I've challenged everybody the same challenge, and not anyone's come up with anything yet. See if you can do it, but I'm sure you can't. Try and think of a form of redeeming love, of redeeming love, that is not substitutionary. Think about parenthood. Some of you are parents already. Many of you have probably become parents sometime in the next decade. Here's your choice when you become a parent. You can have a child say, oh, here's a nice little child. This will be a nice sort of hobby for me for the next few years. Something to do on the side. That's one way to raise children. Another way to raise children is this is the way you do. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my life on hold for a couple of decades. I'm going to substitute my life for their life. Do you know I'm going to do that? Because if I substitute my life for their life, they will grow up to become responsible, independent adults. It doesn't always work quite this way, but it's a general principle. But other people say, no, I'm not going to substitute my life for their life. And so they grow up to have adult bodies, but they still have childlike behaviour. They're not independent. They're dependent on drugs. They're dependent on popular opinion. They're dependent on everything under the sun. It doesn't work in every case, but generally speaking... If a parent, when you go into parenthood, substitute your life for theirs, and that will be redeeming love. That's how it works. The same works when you're in a fight with someone. You know what it's like. Someone says something really terrible about you. What do you do? You think of something worse about them, okay? And you get back at them. And then they think about something even worse, and all of a sudden, we're on the cycle. We're spiralling down. And you become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. What's the way to stop that? What's the way to have redeeming love in the midst of that? Here's how you do it. Cop the pain. Just cop it. Don't retaliate. Oh, Jesus says something about it. He says, says, love your enemies. That's what he said. Just cop it. You substitute your reputation for theirs. And you actually see that you have a love that is redeeming. All redeeming love at some points is substitutionary. And so we see that God could not turn a blind eye to sin. He could say, let there be light, and there was light. He could say, let there be vegetation, and there was vegetation. But he couldn't just say, let there be justice, and there was justice. Because every family has a debt of sin that is owed. And so what happens? Jesus dies the death that we should have died. He absorbs the penalty He absorbs the ransom. He becomes the one who in substitution becomes redeeming love for the whole of his creation. 
And what does that involve? Well, if you felt some of the pain in that story, or if you read it again when you go home and feel some of the pain that Abraham must have felt as he walked up that mountain, then you're starting to understand at a human level some of the pain of what God went through in the sacrifice of his son. And if Abraham had been standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus died, which of course he wasn't, but if he had been, he could have turned the words of verse 12 around. In verse 12, God speaks to Abraham. But we could now put these words into Abraham's lips and now he could say back to God, Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son. How do you know that God loves you? The answer is simple. Jehovah Jireh. Because the Lord provides. Because the Lord provides a substitute for you as he provided a substitute for Isaac. How does God deal with the problem of evil in a way that doesn't negate the promise of God? Jehovah Jireh. He does it through substitution. Abraham and Isaac going up onto the mountain is given to us as a picture looking forward to the temple. Abraham and Isaac going up onto the mountain is given to us as a picture looking forward to the substitutionary atonement of the cross. And so Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or as John says so clearly, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his firstborn, his only son, so that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Who is this God? He is the one who calls, he is the one who justifies, and he is the one who provides. And so we stand on justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you and we just give you thanks that Jesus indeed was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We thank you that in him was perfect substitution for the debt of sin that our family has and yet in him was the fulfilment of the promise given to Abraham so long ago. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that we can be justified by our obedience and we pray that we will trust in your call in your justification and in your provision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.